Welcome to the Real Estate Financial Economics Podcast, presented by MREX College, a show dedicated to helping real estate investors understand finance and economics from the macro to the micro in order to think strategically and invest intelligently. And now, your hosts, Nikolai Ray, CEO of MREX and professor in real estate financial engineering, along with Dr. Christian Bordelo, PhD in economics, CFO of MREX and armed forces veteran. Welcome to Real Estate Financial Economics, presented by MREX College. My name is Nikolai Ray. I'm the CEO of MREX and also professor in real estate financial engineering at MREX College. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Christian Bordelo, PhD. Christian, how are you doing? Hey, Nikolai, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Today, we have a uh, very interesting guest. Yes, indeed. A friend of, friend of mine, Brian Pellegrini, who is a CFA and senior analyst with intertemporal economics. Wow. And I know it's going to be a very interesting topic, especially having you, Chris, here, who is a, who's an economist, specialized in uh, behavioral economics, and to have, uh, to have uh, uh, Brian here today, who uh, obviously is experimental uh, economics. So, he, you know, the intertemporal, that's becoming pretty, <laughs> pretty exciting. Exactly. exactly. It's going to be really interesting. We're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll go from the macro, and then we'll also go down into the, into the more micro of real estate economics today. Uh, but it's definitely going to be an interesting episode. It's our first episode as well. So uh, the, the first of in many. English, in English, because it's a big series. Uh, in Absolutely. Japan, actually, but it's, it's the first episode in English. So. Absolutely. So it's going to be very interesting. So uh, without any further ado, uh, uh, I'd like to invite our, our, uh, our guest, Brian Pellegrini. Hey, Nikolai. Hi, Christian. How's it going? Hey, Brian. Very good. How are you? Very good. Thanks. Awesome. So, Brian, uh, let's let's get right into the gist of it. I mean, we are living through extremely interesting times, especially when you're when you're in real estate and when you're in finance and economics. Times are very interesting, especially in the U.S. right now. Like, what what what's on your mind as a, as an as an economist? Well, one of the things that differs between me and the standard economics that's practiced on Wall Street is that I put much less focus on statistics. Um, Wall Street has really become a home with sta for statisticians who look at government data and then kind of work backwards from what they find. Um, I'm an Austrian theorist, so the basis for my uh, framework is microeconomics. Everything is microeconomics. And macroeconomics is really just the aggregation of all those microeconomic decisions that people are making. Right. Uh, so you're able to find things that don't show up in the data. You have to remember that they're conducting a statistical analysis on data that's been collected and statistically um, cleaned by the government. So right. you're sort of, what are you really looking at? So what I'm thinking about right now is the breakdown of the global value chain. And so this is the supply chain that brings um, goods and services from the raw materials all the way to delivering to the customer. And with the movement towards just-in-time logistics, the idea was to keep the, bottle, the passage through which goods could flow into the United States or any other country would be as narrow as possible with yeah. just a little bit extra space to catch up. The problem with uh, in 2020 with COVID was you had factories completely shut down. Um, 
quarantines for dock workers, for um, uh, shipping, uh, for people that work on ships. And the uh, for about two months, the supply chain was completely broken and inventories ran down. The problem now is that the inflow pipe is not big enough to allow the, uh, so the inventories to catch up with what they used to be. So that's a big concern because the, the parts that are needed to make further um, the parts are missing. So you have trucks and cars sitting, waiting to be um, finished just because of a few microchips. So um, th that's my big concern is that materials, especially for real estate investors, yeah. um, lumber is already an issue. And I think that'll continue to be an increasing problem. Yeah, lumber and PVC. I mean, just just you know, getting uh, wood. I'm building a lot of properties right now. Just the, you know, a couple of properties. We went from wood framing to metal studs, and you know, waiting on windows for you know 12 weeks essentially, <laughs> when the project's supposed to be finished in six weeks. I mean, it's it's a big it's a big stress on the on the supply chain. That's for sure, and it's going to get worse. Um, unfortunately, the. Uh, a disruption of the semiconductor supply chain uh you know lumber you can source from different places right. and you know you can you can manage that now you can but quickly adapt with the lumber i mean you can even bring like a, a mobile mill and you know start to do some some people are doing that but you cannot do that with microchips yeah no there, there's That's what's happening the issue um with the microchips actually started off in 2019 with a little trade spat um, over issues left over from World War II between, between Korea and Japan. And so what happened was there was, as a little tit for tat, they took each other off their um, approved exporter list. So you could still export uh, components for semiconductors from Japan to South Korea, but you needed to get approval 90 days ahead. Uh, and that hadn't been the case since 2002. So you have 18 years where uh, something hasn't been done, a process right. hasn't been done. And so who, how many people are going to be left over, right? right? So you have this disruption of the supply chain as processes, corporate processes that were just pushing paper around had to be done. So there was already a strain on the system before uh, COVID happened and, and really uh, disrupted the system. The other issue you have is that um, about half the air cargo capacity uh, in the world is in the underbellies of passenger jets. So there is not enough, even though planes have been taken out of storage, um, former passenger jets are being used to carry packages for Amazon where they put them in the seats and strap them in. Um, but even with all that, there is not enough um, uh, uh, air cargo capacity to handle the old load. So, and microchips, especially when they're high, high technology, are generally shipped via air cargo. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, and we'll build domestic capability. Uh, you know, every country in the world is going to have, is going to want to have some form of semiconductor supply chain internally. What's the problem? Well, to build a semiconductor factory, you need a lot of semiconductors. <laughs> we already have a shortage, right? So... That means they have to come from someplace. So that means there has to be either rationing or interest rates have to be higher such that consumption is lower. 
Uh, and that's that's an issue. And, and at this point, there's already a, a, a huge increase in the price of used trucks, trucks that are freight trucks that are more than three years old. And what's because trucks can no longer be moved off the line. There just are not enough supply uh, semiconductor supplies. So um, what's interesting is that you have in the first three years of a truck's life, um, compared to the, uh, the the next three years, the, the second three years is the maintenance costs are three times what they are in the first year. Wow. So the bottleneck is not just a, a problem on its own, it's actually shrinking. Uh, and that's, that's an issue that cannot be fixed overnight and that puts the Fed in a really difficult position. It's, it's a, those are interesting points because a lot of people have been, obviously the last, uh, Last couple months, inflation's been a very, uh, very go-to word among many people, and uh, I think the majority of people were uh, attributing inflation to low interest rates. Mm -hmm. When in fact, uh, right now, probably the thing that that is also affecting inflation quite a lot is is actually supply chains, which is comes as a surprise to a lot of people, I think, or, or don't, don't even realize that at the moment. Well, that's the very interesting thing is that a lot of that inflationary pressure won't show up in the government data, right? Right. So the CPI, they call up a store and they say, how much are you charging for a PlayStation? They don't ask, do you have any PlayStations available? <laughs> so from day one to day two, the price won't change. But good luck finding a, a PlayStation at that price. So what's going to happen is, I suspect, what I've called the eBay effect. Right. Where you go on eBay and it costs 10 times as much to get what you want. Like a CPI doesn't include eBay. That exactly, right. exactly. There's very few used goods, which is where that would show up. Um, and it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't properly account for those. Um, and in the past, um, the big factor in the United States, going back to the 1970s for driving inflation was, a shortage of labor, right? So that's why they were always talking about how low the unemployment rate was and how right. are we going to keep growing. Um, the ability to import uh, almost as much as you want from low-cost uh, countries and manufacturers um, prevented that inflation from flowing through. Um, but now we have that that uh, supply chain from China and other countries has been interrupted. So even though we have very high unemployment and a, a terrible participation rate for the labor force. Many people have dropped out of labor force entirely. Right. Um, we're going to have uh, inflationary pressure because the goods aren't coming off the um, off the ships fast enough to meet the demand of consumers. It's it's incredible because you know uh, I'm a CFO you know by profession and you know, all of these talk I have with my peers, it's always about, you know, the latest innovation and what kind of strategy and risk mitigation. And, you know, do you think you're growing fast enough? You should do this and that and this and that. And, you know, just like just before this crisis, you know, I was at the big uh, symposium at the University of Toronto with uh, uh, some uh, some colleagues and everybody was like, just in time, you know, it's the best thing in the world. I cannot get enough of it. I want more just in time. And I was like, I'm not sure I really like that because it's very like, a, you know, in terms of risk regarding any systemic kind of risk, it's very weak. You know, you don't have a lot of uh, resistance to that. So 
And now everybody's like, oh, wow, you're so bright. You didn't go into the, the, the just in time. So there's a lot of companies now that didn't adopt that and are doing far better on the market and have a competitive mm-hmm. advantage today, you know, getting out of the crisis because they actually didn't follow the, the, the sexy innovation of the time. Yeah. Was the just in time. So it's very interesting. It creates like a, some sort of a dichotomy also on the market right now. Definitely. Um, one of the, the factors that I look at when I'm looking at individual companies is whether they have a, a, a dedicated truck fleet. So many, many uh, retailers just went to outsourcing their, their movement of trucks. And guess what? Uh, there aren't any trucks to be found and there aren't any drivers to be found because all the driving schools were closed. And prior to this, I had written about how um, the trucking, the average age of truckers was 50 versus the rest of the workforce is 42. Uh, And the reason for that is in the 1980s, trucking in the United States was deregulated uh, and the prices had been manipulated. So all of a sudden it became very profitable to become an independent trucker. So in today's dollars, truckers were earning um, upwards of $100,000. Over time, more people entered the industry and the, um, the, the, the compensation went down in real terms, um, but it's a lifestyle. So people who had entered the industry 30 years ago, they're not going to change um, just because their, their, um, re- their real compensation has fallen. Um, so a lot of them, when it became dangerous because of COVID, they just sat out and there are not enough trucks. And not, even if they have the trucks, they got to bring back the drivers or train new ones. So companies with a fleet of dedicated trucks, they're going to be more reliable for your, uh, your real estate investors in terms of being able to show up with the goods they want. Um, and they're more likely to stay in business. So all things considered, you're going to want your suppliers um, around when the building is uh, finished. And those are interesting. Those are, those are really interesting points also to be made because a lot of real estate investors like to uh, look a lot at unemployment data, right? Because of, of how values in, in multifamily real estate and commercial real estate are, are specifically tied to uh, the ability to raise rents, to uh, also lower uh, vacancy rates and stuff like that. Um, but there's also a way where, as you were talking about looking at data, there are many ways to interpret data and also to skew the statistics. And like unemployment rate is one of them where, I mean, I, I heard some economists this week saying, oh yeah, things are great. And unemployment rate, rates are dropping back down. But then when you look at the amount of people in the workforce, and you look at the total number of, of people employed, re, in, in reality, unemployment rates are actually higher than what's being advertised. Oh, definitely. One of the um, indicators that doesn't get watched much because it's outside of the usual process that Wall Street follows, um, but the Fed produces it, it's called the non-employment index. And so this that measure measures all the available labor Yes, yeah. in the market, including people who want to work more hours and people who have dropped out of the labor force, but who would like to come back. And it weights the um, uh, the the available hours of each of those people based on their attachment to the labor force. So someone who's been out of the labor force for a month will count for more than someone who's been out six months. And when you look at that measure, it has not improved anywhere near the way the, the official unemployment measure has. So there's a lot of labor sitting on the sidelines that might not come back. And that's. I think that's a great point that real estate investors who are listening to this or watching this 
keep an eye on the non-employment index and maybe not look at unemployment rates as much mm -hmm. when considering what's going on with markets. What do you uh, what do you think of also? Uh, I know in your your latest letters you spoke about uh, about bond yields and bond yields are also you know very uh, important not, uh, you know important influencers at least in multifamily real estate. Uh, what, what's your what's your take on bond yields right now? Um, I think that investors should be ready, uh, real estate and everybody else, um, for yield curve control. So as investors, uh, as the market becomes more and more concerned about potential inflationary um, consequences later down the line, um, they're going to want to try and um, push a, a long-term nominal interest rate. The Fed isn't going to want to do that because that defeats what they're trying to do, um, which is push down real interest rates. So what they're going to want to do is um, called yield curve control, and that's what the Bank of Japan is doing, um, and where they decide on a split between the two-year and the 10-year, right. uh, and they keep it there using bond purchases. So that does two things. Um, when they implement that, that's going to push down uh, nominal interest rates from where they already are. And then if they, they're going to hold it at whatever level, level they choose, and as inflation rises, it means that real interest rates are falling. Right. So even if they keep interest rates at the same level, even if they keep bond purchases at the same level, the, the economy will be pressured to accelerate. Uh, and so if you have pricing pressure um, that starts to show up and becomes difficult to hide even in the data, um, the Fed has a, a difficult decision on its hands. So I think one thing is that your investors should not be too worried about um, taking floating rate loans yeah. uh, because the the increase in interest rates that we've seen over the past, you know, say six months um, are not going to continue on trend. Uh, they're more likely to reverse. Yeah, a lot of a lot of investors and, and even various experts were were jumping on the the, the bond yield increase bandwagon. I remember in January and uh, I remember having that chat about, you know, about talking about number one, they're there are various things that you have to understand with bond yields, and and also uh, one of them as we got closer to March and April is the seasonality of bond yields. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, March April is when bond yields are at the highest in, in a year, uh, and then whereas say August September is when they're at the lowest. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the bond yields, you know, kind of flatten out after all, not you know, not run away like a lot of people thought they were going to run away. That's for sure. One of the uh, best indicators that your investors should keep in mind. Um, is what I call uh, the speculators curve. Right. Um, so that's the, the split between the five-year treasury rate and the 30-year treasury rate. And that's typically where uh, speculators play because there's much more movement in the price of the 30-year um, than there is in the 10-year. So the investors curve, which is real money investors, pension funds, um, banks, and the like, um, they look at the two-year 10-year. Right. So the two year right. treasury relative to the 10 year treasury. Um, so what your investors can do is watch that 530 curve and that's going to point the way for the 210 curve. The 210 curve will move if it is delayed, it will move afterwards and catch up with wherever the 530 has gone. So that's something where depending on their time horizon for the loans, um, they can use that 530 curve as a way to project 
what sort of loans they're gonna um, they're gonna have to fund uh, right. in a few months do they, do they lock in long-term loans or you know stay on and like you said like the variable or short-term short exactly term. exactly yeah yeah that's for sure that's definitely an interesting point chris you like you like uh, interest rate discussions don't I love, you i love interest rates it's beautiful <laughs> and, and you know we're we're sitting right now i'm sitting in ottawa maybe 10 kilometers away from the bank of canada which is uh, our our little fed and we had last week uh, another conference where they, they announced that they were keeping, you know, the, the same rate. So nothing will change. They look at it in, um, at the growth target of 6% for the rest of the year. Um, you know, we're still below the inflation target of 2%. So nothing's going to happen from the Bank of Canada right now. Um, is it... Uh, an outlook that would be similar to you know what you see in the US in terms right now everybody's waiting see what happened looking at the inflation target I mean we're not on a calendar based kind of thing we're on an inflation target kind of thing is it the same that you're seeing in the US right now um one of the things that the Bank of Canada has to to contend with that the Fed doesn't is the movement of the Canadian dollar versus the US dollar right so the, the 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 bank of canada has to um make sure they don't tighten too soon which can be a problem for the canadian economy um but given the canadian economy's um heavy output of uh, raw materials which is very useful for the united states and it's um a friendly neighbor um relative to some of our other suppliers uh i think there will be definitely some upward pressure on that uh, uh, that in, um, inflation rate, um, but they're going to want to hold it for a while because they're going to be concerned about all the um, floating rate loans and personal right. the personal loans that were used to buy property uh, in, you know, Vancouver. Um, and uh, uh, the concern about the price of oil would probably be uh, another factor that the Bank of Canada has to consider. Which is a very important factor in our economy up, up, up here, for sure. The Bank of Canada last week, they did though announce that they they were cutting they were cutting uh, a bond, their bond buying program down by 25%, which is a uh, decent amount. One of the things that uh, all of the, um, all of the central banks have to consider, but some it's more of a constraint than others, is the supply. Yeah. Bonds, right. They need these bonds to be liquid so that banks can use them as reserves. Right. But as they buy up all the supply that's out there, um, they become more of a liability for the banks than an asset because they start to uh, move around in unpredictable ways um, due to the illiquidity. Um, the whether for better or for worse in the United States, the um, the federal government and the Federal Reserve have a nice little cabal where um the Fed says we need more bonds, and the federal government's happy to spend more money and create more bonds. Right. Um, so the supply issue is less of a factor here. Um, but the Bank of Canada definitely has to be cognizant of that, and they also have to be careful because um, there was already a lot of inflation in in um, real estate prices. So they don't want to set that off and go crazy. Right. Um, they want to maintain a, a stability. So you know they're gonna they're gonna tighten very slowly and they will probably rely more on interest rates than bond purchases in the longer term 
Right. Yeah, because we're walking a fine line here with the with the you know the house price, the real estate price in terms of the residential market, which is a big liability for any economy. And you know the Bank of Canada right now, and it, that has been acknowledged by even the Canadian Housing Mortgage Corporation, which is like the the Freddie Fannie kind of thing in Canada. And it's uh, in the position, it's it's a hard one because you cannot rise too soon. But the more you stay at that position, the more the residential market is getting, you know, bigger and bigger as a balloon. And that creates also like system, other type of systematic risk that, that you have in the market. So that's a big issue that we have here right now. Is it something that you feel in the U.S. the low interest rate is uh, uh, kind of creating some issues in the residential market like uh, like we saw in the past or it's, it's fully controlled? Uh I mean, the, the big difference this time, I think, is that the change in interest rates is not uh, the, the main factor driving the demand for housing. It's the reorganization of where people want to live. Um, so it's not immune to the interest rate issue, but it's not the prime driver. Another reorganization of where they want to spend their money as well. Exactly. That's a big change. And, and um, people want space. Um, Another really uh, important factor in the United States was um, the way that, that the um, asset-backed securities were structured. Right. So the asset-backed securities based on um, adjustable rate mortgages in the United States, um, one of the interesting things that the banks were able to do, and this was something I participated in, uh, for better or for worse, um, the banks would send a package, a loan tape, um, with all the details of a portfolio of loans, and they would send it to the rating agencies and say, how do you rate this? Right? right. And so they'd say, well, it's A+. plus." Okay, we'll come back. Change the portfolio around a little bit. Send it over again. Oh, this is double A-. minus. Okay, so we took out these and added some of these. So... Uh, uh, what what changed? And you can back solve the rating agency's model. And what the banks figured out was that um, housing price appreciation mattered much more than the credit quality of the buyers. So, and the assumption being, well, if the person defaults, you can just sell it. And you might even make some money. Right. Um, so they didn't take into account any systematic issues. Um, and then because of the way arms work, the idea was you have a teaser interest rate for two years. And by the end of the two years, the price of your house has gone up by 10 or 20%. So you've all of a sudden magically accrued more equity. That would allow you to re, um, uh, refinance at a lower fixed rate. And maintain a good loan to value ratio, essentially. And part of the problem was that the bonds were structured assuming there would be a very fast rate of refinancing. So even if every single person in that portfolio didn't default, they kept paying on time, the bonds would default because they were assuming you'd get a ton of cash flows in those first two years as people refinance. So that was a big factor was um, not necessarily that a bond is all bad loans, but how well was the asset-backed security structured by the bank who issued it, right? right. And so... Um, and then the ability to withdraw equity through um, home equity lines. But essentially, Krista created a mismatch in timing, right? Exactly. So there's so you know the the um, and the ability to treat the house as a, a, an ATM 
um, to just draw cash out, uh, even though it's highly a liquid asset, uh, that's pretty much gone. So um, I don't think you have the financial uh, risk, the systematic risk from the housing market that you did, um, you know, in the mid 2000s. What it does, though, right now is that the residential market, as it inflates, obviously makes uh, access to housing less affordable. Mm -hmm. And that also puts pressure on demand of rent of, of for, for apartments, right? For, for, um, for, for, for rent, for, for units, which, you know, is, is a good thing for a multifamily real estate investor because, you know, the value of an apartment building is based off essentially the compression of the cap rate and the increase in the rents, mm -hmm. your ability to increase your, your rents versus to versus the increase of expenses. So essentially your, net operating income is increasing. So uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of real estate investors right now are kind of banking on that fact that that increased pressure, upwards pressure on rents. So they're projecting, you know, a lot of investors are essentially, even though they don't know it, they're using the Gordon model for, okay. for rent. <laughs> so they're essentially, you know, saying, well, you know, my NOI and the G is going to keep on increasing. Uh, bond yields, you know, interest rates in, on multifamily properties are essentially built off of bond yields uh, usually. So if bond yields are staying low or even, you know, dropping a little bit, well, then obviously that that cap rate that's derived from the Gordon model, you know, it's saying, well, you know, let's keep on buying. In fact, let's even keep on paying more for these properties mm -hmm. as I'll be able to, you know, kind of run myself out, run myself out of any any risk by you know my rents continuing to increase like they are that, that is also prone to another system systemic risk is the the, the government risk right now you know right. that all these price increase in rent is driving far left political party i don't know if you see that in the us but here like yeah. you're getting on this uh, housing crisis and they want to freeze for uh, for all the rent and all of these new program and so on so the government intervene more in the the private uh, rental market so that's a big risk because i mean if you again you think you know this this increase will keep at a certain pace for x amount of time mm -hmm. you just need an election and uh, all of these projections they can they can change all of a sudden yeah the political risk is definitely um much more of a factor in the u.s and in canada than it yeah. was. 10 years ago oh, and, we've seen, and we've seen it in california mm -hmm. new york uh, illinois all all the kind of uh, landlord unfriendly uh, <laughs> governments and it's really had a, a pretty bad effect on on the on the, on the multifamily properties and Even in new york like recently i think like uh, maybe like six or nine months ago i think in new york there was a, a couple new measure and uh, i saw some some people saying now you know uh, if I don't get this, I'm, I'm not getting into the market anymore because of mm. because of these measures. And uh, I don't recall the exact uh, measure. Maybe Brian, you know. I mean, you're in Brooklyn. It was uh, is it a rent control measure that was introduced a couple of months ago. Well, yeah. So there's two factors. One is that it's basically impossible to evict anyone. So yeah. <laughs> they could stop paying rent. They could have chickens in their apartment, and it doesn't matter. You can't get and, it. And if you try any cash for keys. It's just so expensive. I mean, I heard of a, a developer it cost him fifteen million dollars cash for keys to get a uh, to get someone out of a, a one bedroom apartment in in uh, in the village. <laughs> yeah, that's and um, the other factor um, is uh, uh, Christian, as you mentioned, um, the way that New York's rent control was set up was that it was assumed that there would be a very tight market. So as long as the vacancy rate 
was less than 5%, um, rent control and rent uh, stability measures were in place. Right. What happened with the COVID crisis, it dropped way below uh, 5%. And um, uh, the city said, oh, well, actually, we really like to keep these things. So even though we made these promises before, we're going to keep them as they are. Um, and definitely in New York, one of the ways that the government sort of traps real estate uh, developers is promises of wonderful tax breaks. Right. And so they come in and they do the math and they say, wow, look how much money we can make. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, five years later, the politician needs some political donations or wants to be more populist. Um, and all of a sudden it's like Darth Vader changing the terms of the agreement. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> if Darth Vader says, well, you know, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's definitely a factor that people should you, be. You move to Florida and to Arizona. <laughs> and yeah, be, be, be cognizant of how vulnerable the candidates where you live are to populist pressure. For right. sure. And we've seen a lot of movement, especially in the multifamily market for essentially for the Sunbelt, right? Uh, Arizona, mm -hmm. Texas, Florida, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia, Carolinas, even like these markets are just on fire. And a lot of investors going there as yeah. well. Yeah, the, the, you recall the conference in Orlando, Nicola, that we did a year yeah. and a half or two years ago? We held, we held a uh, summit in, yeah. in Orlando two years ago. And, I mean, yeah. the, half of the panelists were, were from the north and they, they had moved down to Orlando because of, uh, of in part of these measures that uh, that were compressing, you know, the, the, the margin and so on in the, in the north. So. And the lack of an income tax in, in Florida is definitely a, a big help. <laughs> For sure. Um, part, part of the issue... Um, uh, in the northern states, um, you know, with um, Illinois being the most uh, notorious, but New, New York and New Jersey as well, is that they played this game of borrowing from the future without actually writing down any liabilities. Right. So with uh, municipal workers and, uh, uh, you know, public sector workers, they pay them, they underpay them cash, but they say, don't worry. You can retire when you're 55 and for the rest of your life, you'll have a very comfortable pension and that's no problem. Um, that's okay if you plan on fully funding the pension. Right. Uh, but the states have stopped doing that a long time ago and the liabilities have continued to accrue uh, and they haven't done anything to solve the situation. So it puts the um, people who live in the northern states and then also certainly real estate investors um, are the quality of services going to drop? Are taxes going to go way up? Is there going to be this movement to force um, more um, affordable housing uh, and, you know, looser um, uh, um, eviction laws uh, to satisfy a populist base and to pay for all these promises that were made a long time ago? So it's it's something and it's showing up in the um in the census and the congressional allocations the southern states are getting more powerful because the population's growing because people want to live there are you yeah. saying some governments don't know, don't know what a balance sheet uh, is <laughs> <laughs> yeah well for a long time they didn't have to right. um the the um uh, the accounting standards for municipal didn't include unfunded liabilities so you know if you remember you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of concern about the defined benefit pensions that 
uh, corporations have. Right. Uh, and they sort of took the pain. They caught up in funding them because they had to to maintain their credit ratings. And then they also moved towards um, uh, uh, defined contribution, things like 401ks. Um, the government didn't have to do that for a long time. And even now, there's not all that much pressure. So what they do is they just assume these unrealistic rate of returns. So all of a sudden, um, the California pension uh, system is claiming it can make returns that are on the level of a, a hedge fund, right? And that's just not realistic. Wow. Uh, so, but if you do that, it makes it look like you're fully funded, no problem. Um, now there's been more pressure to reduce those uh, expected rates of return. And eventually there will be more pressure to um, fully fund those retirement plans. I think that in the end, at the end of the day, that'll be the next bond buying program by the Fed. Um, They've purchased corporate bonds. They can purchase anything they want as long as the Fed, as long as, excuse me, the Treasury um, insures it. So I think that what will happen is there's going to be a, um, uh, and this may also happen with student loans, this realization these, these, these things can never be paid back. Let's just buy them uh, directly from these entities and not ever asked to be paid and back. use time value of money on the long term to exactly just exactly right right <laughs> inflation is good for that as well right mm -hmm. but, but something you know here we, we we had the same problem at the municipal level and we didn't have this accounting uh snafu i mean it's it, it's it's more like a political kind of thing it's hard to i mean you announce in this the 50s the 60s the 70s all of these beautiful uh thing you know banking on on, on like a, a baby boom kind of growth that you know didn't actually uh, continue didn't happen so at some point you know when when are you going to announce that it's not going to happen it's hard politically to do that so you just wait until you know it, it actually happens and usually your term is it's a short term it's four years eight years you know this thing is in 20 25 years so you can actually know when it's going to happen but there's some things that are you know you cannot escape from and we saw it with the infrastructure gap that was growing for like a couple of decades and at some point here we had multiple bridge collapsing from mm -hmm you know, bad maintenance and lack of maintenance and so on. And that was foreseeable, but at some point it's happening. And when it's happening, you actually have to spend the money. And, you know, how do you do that? You have to borrow and raise taxes and so on. So that's a big, I think, you know, in the, the next couple of decades, it's something that most model are not looking at. It's, you know, this massive infrastructure gap that are here in trillions of dollars. Somebody's going to have to repair all of these infrastructure at some point. And there's no money right now. It's like a condominium where you see the roof, you know, the roof is like a 10-year kind of thing and you have to redo it, but nobody has any money to actually do it. So the HOA fees are too low and there's not enough. Yes, it, it, I mean, you can see this this thing happening. And, you know, I don't think a lot of investors that are investing, let's say in Montreal City, for example, or Toronto, where, you know, this gap is just brutal. It's massive. At some point, you have to do it. Like, I mean, the the... the the water is leaking from everywhere on the ground. I mean, you're going to have to do something, and that's going to raise your taxes. And who's going to pay the municipal taxes? It's always, it's always the, land, the, the landlord. The landlord pay the taxes uh, here in Canada at the municipal level. So, I mean, if you, don't, you, if you haven't compute anything regarding that, you're going to have a surprise soon enough. That's for sure. And, and one of the issues is that the longer you wait to yeah. make repairs to infrastructure, the lower your potential growth rate is. So right. it becomes even harder. You know, you're carrying more weight 
before you have to fix those things. Um, so it, it adds over time. Um, and the, the other factor is the best way to achieve that is exactly the opposite of what they want to do. The best way to achieve that savings that would be necessary to fund all that infrastructure is to raise interest rates. But because the standard way of thinking among um, the central banks, um, this uh, new Keynesian framework, uh, the way to encourage economic growth is to reduce savings. So they look at, um, at the economic activity as independent from the actual physical resources that are sitting on the ground. And that's what differentiates Austrian theory from uh, New Keynesian uh, or neoclassical theory that is um, taught in colleges, um, practiced at the Fed and understood across most of Wall Street. Um, so they miss these factors where there are real on the ground things that need to be thought about. Um, and, and at the end of the day, they're gonna find out the hard way that you need to increase savings, reduce consumption by the government and uh, people. Um, and the only way to really achieve that is either to have martial law or the better way is to raise interest rates and just take the pain. For sure. And it, it makes for, I think that those are all very important things. Like it's all very high level, but they're important considerations for real estate investors of deciding which markets to invest in. Because I mean, uh, that that's another thing is this, uh, I always call this like optimistic, uh modeling or or mm -hmm. you know it's like what you were talking about with like california with the pension funds a lot of real estate investors make the exact same mistake when they're looking at a, a potential acquisition you know they they you know the the basis of a pro forma when you're playing with excel spreadsheets or you know whatever tool you're using is you know garbage in garbage out right <laughs> oh, the, the quality of your outputs depend on the quality of your inputs mm -hmm. now if for example uh, what a lot of people do because they have very little real estate investors have very little financial knowledge. They're mm -hmm. usually mom and pop investors. They don't necessarily have a very big finance or a, a, economics background. So, for example, when they do learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet and start, pro, you know, using pro formas, they might just plug in like a a a a two percent, a three percent rent growth year on year. And a two percent operating expense growth year on year, mm. but that that that's like the California pension fund just mm -hmm. saying, oh yeah, we're, we're going to hit you know fourteen percent IRR. You know that's yeah. kind of based off nothing. And if you're in New Jersey or uh, Minnesota or Illinois where the infrastructure is going to need massive investments, mm -hmm. uh, chances are your operating expenses might actually end up uh, increasing more than your rent growth. Definitely. And then your model's out the window. Like you're, you thought that in five years or in ten years your property would be worth X amount, and then you refinance to say pay back your 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 limited partners who who gave you the money to buy the property in the first place. But then, essentially, whoop, you're not you're not hitting that target value. Mm -hmm. And then, well, it's it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. The tide the tide's gone out, and you. You weren't wearing any pants, and, and you weren't wearing any pants <laughs> So I think being cognizant of which market to go into is extremely important because, as you said, if you're staying in these northern kind of markets, well, you better change the way that you're you're modeling your acquisitions because there could be some very bad surprises later down the road. 
that's for sure. And I also say, you know, the the many of the uh, real estate investors are better positioned to make forecasts than the people on Wall Street because they actually have real life experience doing <laughs> things, right? And they have the ability to analyze across markets, um, partly because of regulation, but just also partly because of turf wars. Different analysts within a bank stay in a very tight silo. Yeah. So if you're talking to an analyst about the dollar and you ask a question about the real estate market, they'll say, well, that's not really my thing. Uh, but those two things are very much connected and you should be able to comment on. Them. Absolutely. Um, and the other factor is that um, if your investors ever feel like they don't understand what an economist is talking about is because that under, that economist does not understand what they're talking about. <laughs> Economics is part of everyday life. We're all economists. When you go to the store and you say, I have so much money to spend, do I want um, you know, chunky peanut butter or regular peanut butter? You are making a, an economic decision. Um, and so uh, many times, the, just out of self-interest, there has become this sort of... Um, uh, mysticism surrounding economics and they use terminology that that doesn't apply to real life um so if someone's talking to you and you're saying hey, this sounds like gobbledygook um stop stop listening to them and go someplace else uh, <laughs> and i would i would encourage them to read the works of friedrich hayek um uh, or various uh, um um ludwig lachman um both um famous and um, key Austrian theorists who speak in plain language and who use words to do the same functions that um, today's economists use equations for. Yeah. So they hide between a screen of uh, equations and um, it's just not real. I'll make sure to link those down in the description below. That way people who are watching can go and look into that. Especially Lachman, I mean, Lachman, and this is a perfect time to read Lachman. Lachman talks about um, the uh, mismatch between the um, resources available for investing and resources available for consuming caused by a mismatch of interest rates. And the way that he actually, um, the example that he uses or the metaphor that he uses is a builder who has the wrong measurements for what he has available. So they tell him he's got 2,000 bricks and um, you know 8,000 shingles, but actually he's got 1,000 bricks and 2,000 shingles. So he'll put, build his huge plan for a huge building and he'll start building and then he'll get to where the bricks run out. Right. And that old plan is no longer feasible under any conditions because the bricks don't are there to make it. So what, what do you have to do to have a functioning building? You then have to disassemble the existing building, which takes time, which you're going to lose resources. Certain bricks are going to be too broken and time. rebuild another structure. Right. And so that was um, part of the reason why we had such slow growth after the housing crisis was that capital had to be reallocated. So uh, Lachman talks about that a lot. Um, and in terms that I think um, would be familiar to your uh, real estate investors what on the on the subject of capital allocation what do you think of uh, that whole kind of narrative that you know a lot of money still from from 08 from qe1 hasn't been allocated yet and now we've printed all this money since last year 
uh, a lot of people are banking on the fact that you know assets like real like real estate assets uh, will continue to, to increase in value just because there's so much there's so much you know dry powder looking for a home still. I think it's um more the effect of interest rates than cash on the sideline. Uh, but you're definitely right. Real assets they're already going up in value quite a bit. I mean, used car prices, all these other things, um, and. Part of the issue with the bond buying, it wasn't so much that they were um, adding stimulus so uh, as much as replacing the money that was disappearing. Right. So that's one thing that's very important in Austrian theory is that you have an um, upside-down pyramid of um, the money supply. So at the very bottom, the, the strongest money is reserves held at the Federal Reserve. Um, and as you move up the chain, you have less and less liquid um, assets that are serving as money. So the definition of money in Austrian theory is something you can trade for something else without uh, uh, on short notice and without fear of losing um, uh, losing value in the trade. Uh, and so you could have in 2006 um, a highly illiquid uh, um, uh, um, junk um, asset-backed security was treated as money. I wrote about this. It was the, the the shadow banking system wasn't so much the bonds. It was the money that was being created, right? These these bonds were viewed as the same thing, literally the same thing as a stack of dollars. Um, and when the process unwinds and people realize, oh, that's not actually money. It's really a bond full of shady um, uh, mortgages. Um, they reject it and, they, and they, they sell it for whatever they can get. Right. So a lot of the bond purchasing was replacing this um, false supply of private money um, in order to keep the banking system from collapsing in on itself. And that's why they didn't get quite as much pop as they did. Um, in this case, the, um, the money supply didn't shrink as much, right? Things got, the, the, the Fed did a pretty good job of making the financial system more stable after the financial crisis. Right. So this time they did a lot of printing, right. um, but they might not have necessarily needed to. So that's so money, the, thing the, money the, the old the way um, what is the best way to look at it. Um, it's to, uh, for now, they should be looking at how fast are banks creating credit and um, how fast are uh, low credit worthy borrowers being given credit rather relative to high credit worthy borrowers. And that increase in the money supply, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, in Austrian economics is what inflation is, right? Yeah, it's it's um, um, the, the unrestricted increase in that caused by the private sector. Um, uh, the government can do that as well, but they really have to print at an insane rate to directly create inflation. They can do it, but the the multiplication of the money supply that takes place when banks start lending um, and and start lending to uh, less and less liquid projects. So if you show up a at a bank with a two year um, renovation project on a building and they say, okay, we'll get back in two years, great. Then if you find out they just loaned ten times as much to a guy who has to start from um, a greenfield and and build a huge thing that's going to take 20 years. Well, that's, that's a, that's a little bit different of a proposition lending somebody money for 20 years. 
That means that they think they don't need that money back anytime, anytime between now and 20 years from now. Um, and that they think that they will get their money back. Um, so if it turns out that all of a sudden one of the, one of the um, lenders that has lent the bank itself money asks for their money back, all of a sudden that 30, that 20 year mortgage is no longer just an easily sellable asset. It's uh, a highly illiquid non-money asset. And it creates a mismatch essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the other thing that a lot of people, especially in the real estate sector, have not uh, talked about that much, but following 08, there was also a kind of change in, uh, in philosophy among a lot of, I guess, institutional or, or, or pre-institutional uh, entities like, you know, family offices and PE firms and hedge funds where they're, their asset allocation changed where they went from say a family office that was allocating maybe eight to 10% of the portfolio to say uh, alternative investments like real estate. Well, all of a sudden they went up to like 15 to 16 to even 20% now. Mm. And that money now is being allocated even more to say real estate. Mm -hmm. and that real, that money is being, that money is generating positive returns, which is in itself being reinvested to the real estate which has, uh, in fact, had quite a, 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 a big impact on, say, cap rates in the, in the multifamily space. You know, add that on to, to lower interest rates, and, you know, it makes for a market that has, uh, that has got, you know, it's essentially changed. Like, the fundamentals of the market have changed a lot over the last 20 years. And a lot of people thought it was just going to crash, and it ended up not crashing at all. Yeah, that was an interesting, the, the use of personal loans to, to get the, uh, mortgages had me a little concerned. Uh, <laughs> I was I was definitely looking at um, some of the Canadian banks and wondering, um, but it it ended up not being an issue. Part of the factor I think was that even though the the housing market in Canada was getting leveraged, there wasn't this insane oversupply. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is just the the, the geography and the topography. Right, right. Um, you can go to Arizona. And build a hundred acres of houses right. without too much work because it's all flat and there's no trees, right? Um, you go up to northern Alberta and it's hard to get things there, and there yeah. aren't that many people there to begin with. So, no. um, you know, it's, it's not many people want to live there, right? <laughs> so, I think part of that factor was just that um, America has some of those wide open spaces, and developers could essentially set up mobile factories. Yeah. cranking out houses and and luckily for canada that never took place um you know during its housing boom so and and, and i think you're right that the um the allocations have changed and i don't think they're going to change anytime soon because i think people have realized that with real assets it's not just going to suddenly disappear right you can buy a financial asset and hold it in your hands and somebody says tomorrow i don't want to pay you back <laughs> and Right, um, you know, so that that's one factor where I think there was definitely a realization that owning a bond that is um, connected to um, uh, housing investment is not the same thing as owning a piece of real estate. Right, um, and they don't, you know, they they can be slow to learn, but when they do learn, they they tend to make pretty good decisions. So, for sure. Let's uh, let's finish on maybe. Uh, Couple uh, fun fun facts or or, or, or a bit of uh, what what would you think are the things that people need to take away from this? 
for a real estate investor who, who's buying apartment buildings or who's building apartment buildings, what do you think are the two or three things that person should really keep an eye on right now? Um, make sure that they can be finished. Yeah. Make sure that your, uh, uh, that your contractors have uh, enough bricks and shingles. <laughs> yes, enough bricks and shingles and workers, right? And that their suppliers are, are local or somewhere in the United States. If all of a sudden you have to get something from China, they might have a huge surplus of them. Um, but getting it here is extremely difficult. And now it's going to get worse because of the strike that's going on at the Port of Montreal. Yeah. So I would say make sure that that a contractor has a full supply of all these things and that um, they don't have too much of a mismatch in their um, construction and development loans. Uh, because if a bank were to get a little concerned because all of a sudden they're running low on materials, they could lose their financing and that would prevent the project from being finished. So I think just make sure they can get it done and you should yeah. be in good shape. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Brian, it was really a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much for being our first guest officially. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it won't be your last time with us. Yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're in, you have an open invitation with us anyway. So uh, really appreciate having you here. Where can people find you? Uh, Intertemporal Economics is, uh, you can find me probably easiest on LinkedIn. I have a company page there. You can also go to a research distribution platform called Nucleus 195, and you can find all the free material that I produce. Um, and uh, subscribe if you're interested. So good place to go to. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. <laughs>